1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they're better than ever, with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So... Head on over to Fangoria.com to learn more, to subscribe, and while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. With all that said, let's get on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. He's gonna break! Red Rob! Red Rob! Advise where we'll see a dead body. Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Our guest this week is one of my favorite people, a noted hot rod enthusiast and unrepentant horn dog. He is best known for his excellent artwork, which has graced gig posters for bands like White Zombie, Nirvana, and Soundgarden, as well as his classic cover for Lords of Acid's immortal 1994 album, Voodoo You. Today, he's here to talk to us about one of our favorite recent Stephen King adaptations, Mike Flanagan's Dr. Sleep. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Chris Cooper, how's it going, Coop? Uh, it's going very well. We figured <laughs> out how to make the microphone work. It's going yeah, great. Had yeah, some there's... tech issues right up front. <laughs> there certainly wasn't 15 minutes of us going, how the, why, why can't we make the microphone work? Three monkeys uh, banging on a fucking calculator with a wrench. <laughs> yeah, if you've, if you've ever seen that scene in Zoolander where they're trying to get the files out of the 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 Mac, that's kind of what, what it looked like on, yeah, on our end for much. a while. Yes. <laughs> I, wanna, I wanted to tell you this i don't think i've ever told you this but when, when i was in military school we used to you were used, in military school Wait, oh yeah can we do a podcast about this <laughs> <laughs> it's you could fill a podcast with that <laughs> shit let me tell you but um we used to eat a lot of acid down there and um oh, someone had a copy of voodoo you and i like we would listen to that shit while while on acid like all the time and I was like back then I was still drawing like uh, when I was a kid, people thought I was going to grow up to be an artist because I was always drawing and sketching and stuff like what that. What happened, Scott? I lost. I really <laughs> it lasted through high school and then I just suddenly lost interest in it. And then I started writing and then it was like I just went in a completely different direction. But I remember like trying to ape your style and mm. like draw stuff like the like the devil ladies and shit like that you were doing that it's it's kind of surreal to me that i that i know you now um <laughs> because of like that that little that that piece of artwork takes up like a surprisingly large piece of real estate for me oh, in my, well, you in know, my that's, teenage years. i mean a lot of people i i hear that from a lot of people and i mean it's great it's it's kind of weird because like i mean that I don't know that I've even listened to that record all the way through once, to be honest. Really? <laughs> yeah, I just, I, you know, it wasn't really my thing. You know, the way it happened was uh, uh, I got contacted by Rick Rubin and he said, he said, I've got this record that I'm, I'm 
releasing, you know, in domestically on my label and the cover, I guess the cover for the European release was like a photo of a nude male torso with a hand reaching up between the legs, you know, covering the genitals. And he said, and he said something to the effect of this covers too gay for Walmart. So I need something that Walmart (laughs) will like stock the record. And so the option was you. Well, yeah, ironically, but, but well, but also he said, but I still like, I want something that's like controversial that will be striking. So at the time I was finishing up a show. So I said, well, come over to my studio and we can look through like stuff I have that is existing. And, you know, if there's something that you think will work for that, that'll be cool. So anyway, I was living in a loft downtown at the time and uh, it had like indoor parking. It was kind of like the Omega man, like the gate came up and you drove up a ramp. Right. And uh, so anyway, I get a call. He's like, "Uh, yeah, we're outside. So, you know, go out, I go out to the parking garage and click the remote and this gorgeous like 50s Rolls Royce pulls in and Rick Rubin is being chauffeured by a guy who I found out later I talked to him that day he was really cool but he was a he was a young uh Sikh so with so he had a turban he was wearing like a full turban and everything are you sure this wasn't Daddy Warbucks well no it was totally Daddy Warbucks which is why it was amazing (laughs) so so Rick shows up you know comes in my studio and the first, like almost the first thing he sees is this poster that I had done for my first art show, which was the Lords of Acid art. It, mm-hmm. I mean, no, the only thing that we did different was, you know, I did the logo, you know, the band logo and everything. Right. And he's like, I want this. And I'm like, are you sure? That's like super dirty. You know, that's like the dirtiest thing. Mm. And he's like, that's exactly what I want. And I mean, Clearly, there's a reason Rick Rubin is worth a lot more money than I am because he made the correct <laughs> call on that, mm-hmm. along with a few other things. So, but uh, but anyway, that's my Rick Rubin story. <laughs> what uh, what's your experience been creating gig posters for artists? Is that a fun thing to do, or is it like headaches? Well, like the, ex- I mean, at how- the time I was doing it, it was very fun because at that time. Well, I mean, at that time there weren't, there was really only a handful of people doing it. Like, I mean, myself and Frank Kozik and I was working through at that point, Frank Kozik's company was publishing my prints. So I was working, you know, sort of with him through him. And, uh, it was pretty much, we were making it up as we went. Like basically what we would do is, we'd get a call from a promoter or from the band and say, yeah, we're doing the show. Here's the information. And we would just do whatever the fuck we wanted with no consultation or anything. And then print it up. And as long as we sent a hundred posters or 50 posters or whatever to the band, they didn't, you know, they didn't care. They just looked at it and like, that's cool. You know? Right. And, uh, but th- what, what eventually happened, like, like everything is uh, money kind of ruins it. And it got to the point where there were more and more people doing the posters. 
the posters themselves started to have value as collectibles, which meant, you know, I would do a poster for a, a, a promoter and then I would mail the posters to the promoter to give to the band. And then I would go see the band and the band would be like, why didn't you send us, why didn't you send us posters? What the heck are you, you, what kind of jerk are you, mm-hmm. you know? And cause the promoter was keeping all the posters to right. resell them. Holy shit. And so that's why about, I mean, I was doing it pretty for about seven years straight, I guess. And around the year 2000, I just said, eh, I'm not going to do this anymore. There's too many other people doing it. Too many people ripping me off. And, uh, and, and it, I just, I got sick of having my friends that were in bands, like be disappointed because some, you know, middle person, I, uh, the best story I have about that actually is I did a poster for Nashville pussy and they were going to be playing at the Troubadour in LA. This when I still lived in LA. And, uh, I said, well, look, I'm going to cut out the middleman when I come to the show, I'm just going to bring you your posters that way, the, you know, golden voice or whoever did the show isn't going to get them. So I get there and I'm looking around for somebody and their man, their uh, tour manager sees me and comes up and I'm like, Hey, yeah, I want to go backstage and give them their prints. And he's like, Oh, well, you know, they're all oh, they're Oh, you can't go backstage. Oh, just give them to me and I'll, I'll give them to him. So I'm like, okay, cool. Hand them to him. Five minutes later, the guitar player for the band come walks through the audience and I'm like, Hey, did you get your posters? No. Well, I gave him to the tour manager. Let's go find him. I swear to God on a stack of Bibles, the motherfucker was outside selling the posters to the people waiting online. Mm-hmm. <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> and that was when I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do this anymore. <laughs> You well, almost got to admire the nerve of it. Oh, well, they were, well, they were upset, but also they knew their tour manager and knew what kind of person he was. And he, in fact, is someone sort of, I'm, I'm not going to name names. I, people can figure it out, I think, but sure. he's kind of legendary for pulling shit like that. That man, Harvey Weinstein. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you're not too far off to be honest. But, oh, damn. Yeah. Right. But, How, uh, how how is it these days making a living as an as an artist? Oh, it sucks. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it, it it's well, it's it like, seems like it would be highly difficult. Oh, it is, and I mean, you know, the whole thing like over the last year of social media just completely falling apart right. has not done me any favors, and uh, you know, like like every artist I know, I'm spending a lot of time posting stuff to 15 different sites until everybody figures out what the next Twitter is going to be and ends up there. And, uh, and you know, the, all this algorithm stuff, like I used to, I have a pretty big following on Instagram. That's probably my largest single following. And it used to be really good for me. Like I could post something there and immediately start seeing orders and, at some point, I think it was when they started really pushing, they were trying to compete with TikTok and right. switch over to videos. The algorithm or whatever changed. And like, you know, I just don't get as much uh, 
uh, interaction, I guess. But, yeah. but you know, I'm not here to like whine about my shit. You know, it's like, no, no, but I am I was every, curious about it. Every it's just, it's what it is. It's like everybody, we're all, we're all sort of fucked right now. Not, not just artists, but pretty much anybody who does anything creative because we're all sort of obligated to figure out how to promote ourselves by, you know, making TikTok videos or appearing on podcasts or whatever. <laughs> and, gotcha, and, it's, and yeah, and it's like, so we're all, you know, we're all kind of flying by the seat of our pants, figuring this all out. And uh, I mean, people, you know, people still buy stuff, so I'm good. I mean, you know, like anybody, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, basically I'm providing a non-essential service. So I'm, you know, when the economy goes in the shitter, you know, that affects my business, but Mm -hmm. you know, that's true of everybody. Sure. It's, I think this is like, this period is strange because, um, I think there's never been a better time to, if you're, if you're remotely creative, if you're creatively inclined in any shape, way, or form, Mm -hmm. uh, this feels like, uh, a more advantageous time to be doing that than any other in my lifetime, especially because working for a fucking company, it's, it seems like job security is completely out the fucking window. Yeah, that's totally true. I mean, that's, I, I mean, I feel like I have way more job security just because I'm not, you know, despite what we were saying about like social media and shit, I mean, ultimately I don't have to answer to anyone except myself. And of course that's true when I make mistakes as well, but, but it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's very free and, and definitely technology has made my life a lot easier as an artist. Like when I started like in the late eighties, when I was doing, like a lot of like illustration work and stuff I had every month I had a FedEx bill that was probably five to $800 a month. And I had a phone bill that was five to $800 a month because I was Christ, I was talking to, you know, I was talking to art directors in, you know, New York or wherever. And, and every time I finished a piece of art for a job, I had to physically mail the actual piece of art to them so Mm -hmm. they could photograph it or scan it or whatever. And now, you know, because of digital technology, like I, you know, it's an email, I email art to people, you know, or I upload it and they download or whatever. But like, so that right there, that's like a ton of money I'm not spending anymore. And, uh, and, and, and it's just a lot easier. The downside of course is now that, people can get stuff so instantaneously they expect you to be able to create it instantaneously, you know, and the, you know, so you get these emails at like four 30 in the afternoon. They're like, we need a finished piece of art tomorrow morning. Can you do this? You know, that kind of, which is why I'm not really doing uh commercial art anymore. Right. Yeah. So, you know, well, it's, yeah. the, and the other problem with, with this is like, while it may while there may have never been a better time to be like, you know, launching yourself as a business, whatever your pursuit might be. Um, we're all in competition with each other, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like 
<clears throat> you're 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 doing a completely different thing than we're doing, but we are ultimately competing for people's extraneous income. You know, yeah. like uh, and just our Patreon or your, I mean, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's uh, it's a real weird fucking time. Just a, a real weird time to be making a living doing something yeah. creative. Like I said, I started doing stuff professionally in like the late eighties and I've been mm-hmm. doing, you know, I've been working pretty much. I mean, I only worked a day job for the first couple of years of that. The rest of the time it's been, this is my entire gig mm-hmm. and you know, it's, it, it has ups and downs, but I've managed to stay pretty consistent as far as like making money mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, now I'm just basically waiting for either my wrist or my eyeballs to give out. And it's like, <laughs> oh, I can't do that anymore. You know, I have to go be a greeter at Home Depot or something. So you might have to sell off some of your cars. Yeah. You've, oh, got, a, yeah. you've got a fucking insane collection. <laughs> well, um, it's, for anyone that doesn't know. That's the thing. I always I, I mean, I'm always very frank with my wife about. Like the value of like all the dumb shit that I collect, you know, like I, I, you know, like I, all my record collection and everything is on, is cataloged on Discogs. And I always tell my wife, like, look, when I drop dead, don't let some guy from a record store come in here and, you know, offer you five grand for all these records, you know, here's what they're actually worth. But, uh, so I, I, I mean, yeah, that's probably what I will be doing, and as a, I'll be spending my seventies selling records. Selling records, yeah. It, well, I mean, this is all, of course, assuming that we're not living in some kind of Mad Max apocalyptic yeah, right. wasteland. You know, that's no. You're you're going to be selling selling your spare uh, uh, kitchen sink water. That's yeah, what you're exactly. Gonna be doing. Yeah. Like selling <laughs> copper wiring. You know, so well. Let's move on to some some Stephen King business. Oh, oh, are we going to talk about that? Okay. Yeah, we got to. <laughs> we, we have to. Apparently, that's the subject of the show. Um, uh, what is what is your Stephen King origin story? When did you first become aware of him? Well, I mean, I started reading his books when I was probably like way too young to be reading these his books. I mean. I, I mean, I, I can remember reading those books like contemporaneously with like when they came out, which I had to have been like, you know, seven, eight years old, sure, <laughs> like sure. younger than my son, which terrifies me. But my, you know, my, my, my parents would, would buy the books and would read them. And then I would read them. You know, they were always, my parents never, well, I mean, this is the story of probably every Generation X person, but my parents didn't give a shit what I was reading or watching. Yep. Right. Yeah. So sure. I was taking in a lot of shit that I probably should not have been taking in at that time. But yeah, I mean, I loved all those books. I mean, I think I think the last one that I read when like when it came out was it. And uh I you know, and I it's funny because I've been I listen to this podcast because mm-hmm. you have a lot of people on that I'm like friends with, but yeah, but so I've been, I, and when I listen and you start talking about a book, I haven't read like one of the newer books. I'm always like, well, that sounds kind of good. I should actually yeah, like, sit down and read. fucking listen, read that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Right. So I, do you I, read much these days? Though? I, not as much as I would like. And I'm trying, yeah. I'm sort of deliberately trying to like, 
put my phone away and like sit down and I've, I've gotten back into it where like now I can sit down and read like about a hundred pages in an evening, just like setting down like after dinner nice. or whatever. Yeah. And so I'm trying to, and I, I still buy, I have, I have a house full of fucking books. So, and I have two giant stacks in my studio of like books that I bought that are on the, you know, to be read pile. Right. And so I'm trying now to kind of like, well, I gotta, I gotta start doing something about this. Otherwise I'm just hoarder, you know? So, <laughs> so I'm working through, I'm reading this book called big bang right now by, I can't think of the author's name, but it's really good. It's a really interesting kind of actually, you know, I, another, it reminds me, I want to read that Stephen King book about the, where the guy travels back in time, to try and stop oh, the Kennedy oh, assassination yeah. because that's what this book is about yeah. as well. And Interesting. Uh, so maybe I'll pick that up after this. Yeah. That one, the 11, is, is intimidating because it's one of his big doorstop novels. Mm-hmm. It's a thick, thick boy. It's a big boy. Oh yeah. Uh, but it's also a page turner. It's like it kind of in the way that it or the stand is yeah. where it's like, yeah, it's this massive tome, but like, it's not, it, it never feels like homework. It, it It's kind of like when like lost was at its peak. Mm-hmm. Every time you get to the end of a chapter, the only thing you want to do is f- get dive into the next one because it like always like ends on like, Oh my God, now I got to figure out what happens next or find out, find out what, you know, this interaction leads to and like, Oh my God, what's he going to uncover? You know, the, the next time, the next thing that he's looking into, it's like, you know, how's that going to change the timeline? Like in all that stuff, it, it's, it gets uh, it's addicting in, in the way that King is yeah. very talented at, you know, well, he, I definitely need to, tr- to read that one. I just, like I said, I just, I have giant piles of unread books in my house. Right. <laughs> I only, it, it had been a very long time since I sat down and read a book until uh, very recently we had to do, they, they sent us like, uh, advanced readers copies of, of Holly, you know, like Mm -hmm. I want to say six months before the thing came out. Right. And if you had told me 10 years ago, there might be a day where I'd get a new Stephen King book six months early and not (laughs) read it immediately. Like I would have laughed in your fucking face, but now it's like, uh, that thing of like always fucking around on your phone or, you know, uh, uh, watching something, you know, I'm like, I, I really hate that about myself that that mm. this is what I've become right. and and yeah, so you need to be in the mood to read now or at least I do and right and that that was not me like as a kid I was a bookworm like I I was always reading like in my free I was time, the same I was way. reading like I, I mean listen I love I loved movies and I watched movies all the fucking time you know I was a movie kid but like all through middle school you know late elementary school middle school high school you couldn't catch me uh, without essentially the way King is described in person. Like he'll go to a baseball game and you know, when it gets boring, the game gets boring and there's a timeout. He's popped open a book and he's reading two or three pages. And then yeah, goes back in. That's the way I used to be. And I'm, I'm not anymore. I have to be in the mood to read now. It, it's, it's fucking great. And I don't, I couldn't tell you where that line happened. It just kind of evolved. In, it, it's, into that. it's just, it's the internet has destroyed are anyone's attention span because I because yeah, I realized it when I started making a deliberate effort to get back into reading. I realized that like that it, it you can sort of like fight it. You can 
once you when you start reading again regularly like you you lose that thing that addiction of hmm. oh i have to pick up the phone every yeah every two minutes and look at you know look at, another thing that's helped is there, I, there's no reason to look at twitter anymore because <laughs> right. i'm not a nazi so <laughs> Well, Man, that place has really just... I, oh, fucking hellhole. It's insane. <laughs> I mean, like, it was bad. But I mean, remember how, like, bef- before Elon even, it was like, this place is getting shitty. And then, yeah. you know, once he took on, uh, took over, it was like a rapid acceleration straight to the bottom. Oh, yeah. And it's just, it's awful. Like, I'll go on there, and I used to, like, hang out on Twitter. Oh, well, and, I, I was and, the same way. I would, yeah. I would look at it while I was working on, like, especially like if I'm working at the computer, working on, uh, you know, working in Photoshop or whatever, you know, some, there's some little filter grinding through and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go look at Twitter for five minutes and then sure. you end up on there for 30 minutes. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's no, no more of that. It's like, I'll get in, I'll fucking post whatever thought I might have and then leave. Like there's just, (laughs) it's, you know, it's not a party I really want to be at anymore, but unfortunately, where else do I have that size of an audience to post links to, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's it. You need it. But yeah, anyway, I I think it's going away. I think, uh, yeah, it's in its death throes. I'm spending more time on blue sky now, which is sort of has the feel of like old Twitter. And there's a lot more like there's a lot more weirdos on there. So it feels like the good old days of Twitter. So, yeah. Uh, Well, yeah, I looked at Blue Sky real quick right when it jumped in, like right when it's like became the it was the first like mass exodus after after Elon. You remember there was that day where everybody's just like, I got to get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, and I had had a Blue Sky account and I had like codes and saved up. So I was like giving codes out and people were like treating me like I was fucking uh, Schindler, Oscar Schindler. You know, it was like fucking crazy. And, And then everybody there was like two days where, where blue sky was just this fucking bastion of like weirdness and like odd, sexy tweet or posts or whatever. Yeah. Were you there on Alf Dick day? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was good shit. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm by just by virtue of, well, I mean the kind of person I am, the kind of art I make, <laughs> I follow the company all kinds of weirdos on there and they're all very charming and entertaining and they, will often post nude photos of themselves. So there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Who doesn't want to see nudes if they're, they're, they're mutuals. You know? <laughs> um, but, but it, it feels the, like everybody kind of dipped out. That's kind of the, the ultimate point I was saying was like, it, it like flared up and then everybody like, it, it's the, still going. Every time it's, I coming, it's, I think it, I, I definitely agree with you on that, but it definitely has come back. Oh, that's good. And, I mean, well, I think part of it too is just, a lot more people that I like followed on Twitter have come over there and they're doing, you know, they're doing their same routine, which is great. And, uh, but yeah, I'm, I, I like it just fine. Okay. Yeah, it, it, it is, um, it is hornier. Um, like I, I said, I, I like it just fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like that about it. Um, it's, I think once they uh, unleash the floodgates and like just make it public, yeah, that'll yeah. that'll make a huge difference. Yeah. Um, right now it just kind of ebbs and flows based on 
you know, who's who's being added into the the pool of it. Well, and I think a lot of people, you know, it's like what we were talking about just a moment ago. I think there's a lot of people that do that have a good following and have in the past done good business on Twitter are really afraid to jump ship because, you know, as tenuous as everything is now, you don't want to lose any audience. Sure. You can't afford to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, the, the point I was getting to earlier was, Oh wait. So we were talking about Stephen King, weren't we? Yeah. Yeah. Like it was when I had to read Holly, someone picked Holly for the show and it like, um, it was like, okay, I got to sit down and read this now. And I, 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 I read that book in, I think three sittings, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was like for three nights, I just got in bed and with my dog and I read a book and, you know, drank water and, you know, (laughs) like, like a normal human being. And it was gross. It was fucking lovely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my, my, uh, my good friend uh, Mallory O'Mara is always she's an author, James mm-hmm. Beard Award winning author, I must say, or she'll yell at me. Um, <laughs> she uh, is constantly giving me shit about not reading more, you know, um, and I was like texting her and, and I'm like, I've been in bed with a book for like an hour. It's nice <laughs> and quiet. And like, mm-hmm. I'm having the time of my fucking life. Mm-hmm. She's like, I see. I fucking told you. And I'm like. I really get it. Like reading Holly kind of kind of got me interested in doing that again. And it's probably yeah. better for me just health wise and, and uh, mentally to be completely unplugging and having a couple of quiet nights a week. You know? Oh, yeah. No, you get back your attention span, you know, like you give you get back your ability to just set and sort of cogitate on something Instead of just that constant, like, you know, stuffing your face with Doritos, which is what like social media is, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think it's helping me a lot. And I'm really, I'm really happy with it. Cause I was like, when I was a kid, I, you know, I, like you said, I was the same way. I was constantly reading. I was, I was famous in the small town I grew up in, in f- having gone through like entire sections of our admittedly small live town library just re having read everything in that section so <laughs> i i definitely need to get back into that what have we all become well losers well if, <laughs> I, I know you i know you want to read eleven twenty two sixty three, but what's the last new king book you remember reading I, you know, I gotta say, I think it was the last really? one that I read. Yeah. Mm. I thought I misunderstood you when you said that earlier. Yeah. But I'm, I thought you I just, I got, I, you know, part of it was I got for a long time, I just totally got out of reading fiction because I had read so much of it. And I moved into that phase that I think all guys do where you just get really obsessed with like historical books and history and Mm. and real life events nonfiction, Mm -hmm. and uh i'm i'm you know like i said i'm trying to get back into reading more fiction and well uh, if um definitely check out 112263 and we are contractually obligated 
to recommend uh, Revival to you. I, well, that was one that I wanted to read because I remember I can't remember who the guest was, but it might have been Matt, Matt Fraction. But mm. you guys were talking about that book and it sounded like it sounded great. It sounded like all the stuff that I, yeah, I loved about Stephen King. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a slow burn. It's the sort of thing where, like, for the love of God, do not read anything about it online because mm-hmm. it's got one of his all time greatest endings and it's a complete fucking sucker punch. <laughs> so and people will spoil it for you. Um, well, of course. So, like, it's it's not a long read. It's like three, four hundred pages, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. And it slow burn and you're kind of like, where is he going with this? And you will not fucking predict it. It is bonkers. And I think you would, I think just the subject matter of it would really appeal to you. So yeah, either of those would be great. It sounded very interesting. Yes. Now the title you have brought today is Dr. Sleep. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of, one of my personal favorite King adaptations, but not one of my favorite King novels. Um, Yeah. For anyone who has not seen Mike Flanagan's Dr. Sleep, can you give us a brief overview of the the plot? Uh, Okay, let me see. I might have to pull up the Wikipedia. But basically, it's a sequel. (laughs) It's a sequel to The Shining. It's about Danny, Danny Mm -hmm. Torrance as an adult. And he has, because of, of course, the trauma of the events of the you know, the original book film. Well, in this case, I should say film, because that's one of the things Mm -hmm. that's kind of interesting about this to me was interesting to me when I watched it the first time was that it's a sequel to the movie, to Kubrick's Mm -hmm. shining, which, you know, of course, anyone I'm sure listening to this knows Stephen King hated. So I was that. So what the whole time I'm watching it and I'm watching these beautiful really well done you know recreations of the scenes from the from the shining and uh you know and of course the overlook hotel itself i kept thinking man how did they get stephen king to agree to this because mm-hmm. this must have pissed him off but i you know one of the things i i did a little background reading before we came here and uh and i realized that that was you know, part of the genius of the director is he he sort of talks Stephen King into it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and that Stephen King was pleased. And in fact, it made him sort of reassess the Kubrick movie. Yeah. Which is yeah. good. But, yeah, but anyway, so Dan, so Dan, our, our adult Danny Torrance is uh, is f- a fucked up person, as you might be <laughs> having lived through those events and uh he starts getting these messages from this who we find out later is a young girl who is has the same sort of powers and uh she gets his help to find these 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 sort of psychic vampires that kill children with that have this talent and to like absorb their life essence or whatever. And, uh, and then that's the, you know, where the ball starts rolling is, you know, he has to find. And then of course, once they, the, of course they know now the, the vampires know about them. So they're coming at them. And, uh, is this, is this making any sense? Am yeah, I, am yeah, I doing yeah, this yeah. properly? Yeah, you're, you're doing and, great. Uh, and so it all ends up back at the overlook 
And so, so it's not only Danny confronting, you know, these, these awful vampires, it's him also confronting, you know, his own ghosts. And uh, yeah, I mean, and I just, I really, I really, I, I, well, I'll tell you, I'll give you a little backstory because like one of the things that is about my house is that my wife does not enjoy horror movies. So, and we usually watch, when we watch movies, we watch them together. So I don't get to watch a lot of horror movies these days because I usually have to wait until everyone else has gone to bed. And so what happened was my wife was out of town and my son was out of town. So I was like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to like watch a bunch of horror movies, you know? And I got, <laughs> so I started by watching all the stuff, all the stuff that I, I have collected on, you know, Blu-ray or whatever, like all my favorite, you know, Mario Baba movies and Dario Argento movies and shit like that. And, and then I was like, one night I was like, well, you know, there's all these movies that I, my friends have been talking about and I haven't seen them because they're horror movies. And Dr. Sleep was one of them. And I was interested in it because I knew just from seeing, you know, trailers or stuff, I knew that it, that he was referencing the shining the mm-hmm. movie, the shining. So I wanted to kind of get, see how that was. And, uh, and no, I really enjoyed the movie. I, I had a little bit of the, sometimes it felt weird watching the parts of the movie where he's very, you know, specifically evoking Kubrick's movie. Like it's all on a technical level. It's, incredibly well done i mean Mm -hmm. it's kind of striking how well done it is like because a lot of times when in movies when they try to do stuff like that they never quite get it right you know but he i think he did a really good job of it and in fact one of the things that like when i first watched it annoyed me a little bit was when when he returns to the overlook and, you know, he's walking around in the hallways and stuff. And I, I'm watching it. And I'm thinking it does. It seems, you know, the dimensions seem different. Like it seems more claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, you know, next day I'm thinking about it. And I think, well, yeah, you know, when when we saw that, when we, we were, I mean, we were seeing it from the little kid's point of view, like right. riding around on, on the big wheel. And now yep. it, he's an adult. And it's like, when you go back to your, you know, you go back to your grade school and it seems way smaller. <laughs> than you yeah. know, you know, what's crazy about this is that you're, that you're saying this is, um, I noticed this too, the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. And I think by that point, uh, Mike and I were following each other on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I I had the same thought that it was a perspective shift that was yeah. causing it to feel uh, it all felt slightly smaller to me. Yeah. And so I uh, I hit him up like in DMs. This is, uh, you know, long before we were doing the show. And I was just like, I have a I have a weird question for you. I was like, when you built out the overlook, like, did you follow the specs Exactly, because I swear to God, it feels just like a few inches smaller yeah, on each side. Exactly. And he goes, um, he goes, uh, yeah, well, it is because um, 
I think the like I might be getting some of the details wrong here, but the gist was that when Kubrick had his se- his sets built, he did not uh, he did not build to whatever code there is to build in like fire lanes or whatever the fuck behind the walls. Oh, sure. It was like built all the way out and they had to they had to follow those uh, precautions oh, or, or something like that. So like so it was like, yeah, we did it, but it's. It is slightly smaller as a result of that. See, the smart thing to do, this is something I've learned over the years as an artist, is if if I were Mike Flanagan and you had asked me that question, I would have said, well, of course, that's why we did that. And, <laughs> and how clever you are for picking up on that. You know, you all you never admit that you're just flying by the seat of your pants. <laughs> you always you always tell people that that shit is deliberate, you know. Yeah, well, not Mike's style, perhaps, but, you know, uh, so um, how did you how did you feel the first time you heard like Stephen King's writing a sequel to The Shining? Like when you heard about the concept of a sequel to The Shining, how did you feel about that? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean. I don't like know that good, I really. That's a good idea. That's a bad idea. Yeah, like... I mean, I, I, I think. I mean, I kind of, as as someone who who you know, as a reader and as a a someone who you know loves movies, I like that. I generally, as a general rule, I like that. Like, especially if it's like, you know, the original person, the original creator yeah. says, "Oh, I'm going to revisit this." I'm always interested in that. I mean, you know, I'm not interested when it's like, it's just some corporate thing of like, right. Oh yeah. We've got, we've got to make more money off of this IP. We need more content. We need synergy, you know, that kind of bullshit. But I mean, if the actual creator thinks there's something there that's worth revisiting, I mean, that's always interesting. I would say that, you know, that was probably not my, when I, when I was a kid, when I was reading those books, that was probably not my favorite Stephen King. And yeah. it, it's interesting because I think part of it is just the messages of it. A lot of it was over my head because it was sure. about, you know, it was about alcoholism. It was about, you know, being in a marriage and having a family and, you know, all these things that obviously I would not experience for many years later. And I mean, but and that's why also, you know, re- revisiting the Kubrick movie as an adult, it makes so much more. I mean, it hits so much harder when you're an adult with children and you're a father like you. I mean, I understand I understand that struggle. I'm not an alcoholic, but I'm I, I you know, I understand that struggle between you know, like taking care of your family and dealing with like the demons that are in your head and the demons that are, you know, part of like the way you were raised, like we're all, and that's actually goes back to something that I found interesting about Dr. Sleep, because I don't, I don't know if this is Stephen King's intent or if this was the director's intent or somewhere in between, but it's a generational story and it's about because Danny is like generation X, like he's like my age and it's about how 
the you know because like the characters who are like the vampires like rose and her crew i mean and especially in the way they're portrayed in the movie is these kind of nomadic hippie new age types mm. it's very much like the baby boomer generation trying to suck the life out of like you know the zoomers yeah. And it's the job of Generation X to be this like firewall and stop them. And if necessary, by like sacrificing themselves. And, uh, I mean, and I don't know how much of that is intent and how much of that is just me hmm. reading into it. But, That's an interesting I mean, read. But it made me sort of, and especially when I watched it again a second time in preparation for, for doing this, I was like, yeah, that's that is definitely feels like that because well, and also because I started thinking about you know obviously growing up I didn't go through anything like uh, like Danny did, but you know pretty much everyone of my sort of age bracket has a lot of horror stories about you know parents who are like because parents of our generation, like our parents were very, I mean, we were like almost feral as kids, <laughs> like parents just, you know, like, yeah. I, I, cause I was talking to my wife about this once in regarding our son. Cause I said, you know, I re I told my wife, I remember when I was like four or five years old living in this house in Hugo, Oklahoma. And and my mom, my mom's only rule was basically you can, as long as you stay on the block, we were living in this house that was in the middle of a big residential block. She said, as long as you don't cross the street, you can go, you, you know, go do whatever you want. I was, yep. I was like four years old. Like my son is, my son's nine years old and I don't think I'd let him off the leash like that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, I, re I remember like as a kid, just leave, like on a Saturday, leaving the house at say 10 or 11 in the morning on my bike, mm -hmm. meeting up with some friends on their bikes and then spending the afternoon, like quite literally like riding across town, not a oh, small totally. town either. Same, and, same thing. Yeah. And it was yeah. just like, be back by six, you know, yeah. and I'd come home and they, I don't think they had any idea how far away from home I was getting, which yeah. was like substantial. A distance I could I couldn't even hope to achieve on a bike these days, yeah. you know. Um, and like, but I don't remember them ever being like, "Where were you? What were you doing?" Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine doing that with a kid these days. Oh yeah, and I don't even have kids. It's the same same exact story, and I think that's why, like, you know, there's so much talk about like helicopter parents now. And yeah. it's because a lot of them are, I mean, I'm a, probably on the older side of that, but like, I think for a lot of Gen X people and millennials, they, they're reacting to that, like basically being just completely off the leash, you know, their entire childhood. And it's very interesting too, because like, well, and I'll give you an example, like my mom, my dad passed away a few years ago and my mom ended up, my mom's living with us now. And so, you know, she'll bring up things and talk about things that happened when I was a kid and her, her memory of this, like it's, 
and I I mean, I'll call her on it. I'll say, mom, that just did not happen like that. You mm-hmm. know, everything <laughs> she has these kind of rose colored glasses about like my childhood and like, you know, what, what our family went through when we were growing up. And I think, you know, that's probably a fucking survival tactic, you know, as you get sure. older, it's just, you got to kind of <laughs> put it put a nice uh put a nice shine on stuff yeah. because otherwise you would just be horribly depressed yeah no shit yeah. for real but i mean that that's interesting because i think that and i mean i think that's a lot of because when i think back to the you know like stephen king's books particularly those those early books like well i mean you know he's a baby boomer and, uh, you know, and a lot of it deals with his own kind of nostalgia and thinking about growing up. I mean, you know, there's obvious examples like uh, um, the, the the short story that Stand By Me is based on is called it's called The, the Body, isn't the it? The Body. Correct. Yeah. 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 Like that. You know, I mean, that's a probably the most perfect example of that. Yeah, that's boomer porn. But yeah, exactly. But so I think that's really in that context. I think it's really interesting that the movie of Dr. Sleep is really almost a Gen Gen X perspective, which I'm sure the director's probably around the same age as me, you know, probably a little younger. But but um, so I mean, that's I think that's all interesting. And, And it's it's also interesting because, like, I read, you know, I sat down and read like the uh the plot uh, summary in of the book. And yeah. there's so much stuff in the book that isn't in the movie. Yes. And some yeah. things that are a little like, like, you know, it, there are char- characters we find out are related that, you know, and like, yeah, it's kind of a little, a little too like a hat on a hat kind of stuff where it's like <laughs> star Wars shit. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Whereas <laughs> I, I, I much prefer the more kind of randomness of, like it didn't need that, but you right. know, that's, here I am criticizing yeah. the writing of Stephen. King. <laughs> like, he's obviously done done pretty well with it, you know. Right, but um, but yeah, you're not wrong. He falls into that that trap of like trying to overexplain and overcomplicate well, because and- it can't it can't just be that that Abra is really strong. In the shine, she has to be related to yeah. them. That's why they connect, and that like that has nothing. Like you don't need. Like why do you need that? The the rules aren't established that you know that the Skywalkers are the only bloodline that can do this shit. You know, it's like there's it's it's clear that that there's tons of people in, yeah. in the world that that have this this shine, and of course they would like stand out to well, each other. It's As a funny. Of fact, all, the, the whole thi- point of the true knot is that they're attracted to these yeah. people who shine and, and they can find them and, and uh, you know, turn that into well, uh, you know, I, an evil scenario. But. I thought it was interesting, too, because one something I thought about the when I when I watched the movie again was that, you know, the girl, Abra, was so powerful. And it occurred to me, well, of course, she's powerful. She didn't grow up with this incredibly fucked up traumatic childhood she's her parents are obviously very well to do they live in a beautiful house you know they they love her and you know like talk to her and interact with her and it's like she's powerful because she's not fucked up like we all are right well i mean i think so much of the story and one of the things that i that really resonates with me. I think it's in the book, but it's like double underlined in Flanagan's adaptation is this, this breaking the cycle of trauma and mm-hmm. violence. Yeah, exactly. That and that's exactly. So, 
because so much of this is on Danny making the same mistakes his father made, but being able to make the brave choice that his father couldn't. Well, it's and definitely break, break from that, like, yeah. it's definitely about recovery. I mean, you know, he's yeah. in, he goes into Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, that, but, and that was actually something I wondered that I, I hadn't found anything in my, you know, reading about it was because I know that, you know, Stephen King has gone through these same issues. And I always wondered if I have to assume that The Shining was written before he went through any kind of recovery, whereas, you know, this yeah. was after. So I, I don't know. I mean, the, it, that it's nice that you can watch a movie that's like a silly horror movie and it actually gives you, there's like some meat on the bone. There's like stuff to think about, which of course has always been the strength of his, of Stephen King's work. But um, yeah, I just, I really liked, and and I also thought, you know, we talked about the, the recreations of, of Kubrick's film, which were great, but all, like the thing I, I, I liked, I, 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 it made me curious to look into like the other things that the director has stated as an influence because I really felt like in the film itself, very strong David Lynch vibes. Like just the, 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 like the, the thing that really struck me, well, he does a lot of dissolves, like those long dissolves like Lynch did in Twin Peaks, which I mean, almost seemed like, deliberate and in that respect and could be Kubrick but also like I thought yeah. one of yeah, my that's... one of my favorite things in the movie like just the visuals of it are so great is the scene where uh uh rose is trying to find the girl yes. and the way that that is the way that that is composed like the because like the way she's like she's flying through the air but it's it's like she's standing still and the world is changing its perspective to her. Yes. Yeah. It had this weird matter of fact uh dreaming dreamlike quality yeah. that really made me think of like sort of surrealism. And of course, you know, David Lynch is probably the most surrealist modern filmmaker. And it just it it had that that unsettling vibe that you get from when Lynch is really cooking, you know? And, and I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure he's, I'm sure the director is a fan of David Lynch. I mean, I think, you know, how could you not be, but, but it, it just, I, 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 I liked those choices. Like he just, he made a lot of really good choices about the way the story is presented. And, uh, and oh, and let, we should just take a moment to say that Rebecca Ferguson is so incredibly hot in this movie. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and Smoke, it's yeah. it's funny because it's totally that stereotype kind of uh, Stevie Nicks like witchy hippie. <laughs> right. But I, to yeah. be honest, I do not like in the real world, <laughs> but for some reason she pulls it off totally. You know, yeah. But, um, but yeah, I just that that it that he also did a very good job with all of the 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 vampires because they I have to think obviously near dark must have been an influence 
some point along this, but, but also just the way that going back to that whole kind of, they had that creepy hippie new age vibe that like when you meet people like that, you kind of feel like they're psychic vampires to begin with right. so to like actually make them literally psychic vampires was really great. Yeah, and crucial kind of got like a, a, a carny feel to them yeah. too. You know, that just something that's, little off-putting you know i i do like that like the age range like Mm -hmm. you know is is substantial you know in there and that you get oh and you know i just it just occurred to me that one of them is uh uh, i can't think of his name now but the guy he's in twin peaks Peaks, right uh yeah carl strucken that's it thank you yeah um (laughs) and and another thing that he kind of nails about that that kind of uh What's the word? Personality. That sort of (laughs) bohemian, nomadic, hippie shit is that I kind of think all those people are full of shit. (laughs) Right. And the true knot is definitely and and the true knot is definitely full of shit. You know, like Mm -hmm. like Rose is kind of bullshitting all of them and you know, it's like they're they're living in their own fantasy world. Yeah, well, Um, and that's it, is it's all kind of it it has that feel of a cult. And it's like, yeah, they're all, they're living on the road. They're, you know, they're, they're yeah. not living comfortable lives, I don't think. But, but yeah, it's that, see, all these things are all very, yeah. all very interesting, you know? Yeah. Well, down to like, they they give each other like eye rollingly cringy nicknames. Yeah, of and course. Shit, you know, <laughs> yeah. pro daddies like over Manson there. girls. And just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it really does. It's really interesting here. Uh, what what Mike does and how he's able to make them um, seem threatening. Cause on the page they do horrendous shit. Don't, yeah. don't get me wrong. The, you know, the baseball boy, you know, scene in, in the movie is, that's one of the, watch. one of the most fucked up things that's been in a, a studio picture that, that I can remember in the last like uh-huh. 15 years. Um, but you know, on the page, it's not, it's not that much better. You know, it's like they, they do really fucked up stuff. Any, I mean, any group that's hunting children is, is going to be, uh, not, not great. Uh, but, um, but they, they can border on the ridiculous and, and, you know, the way that Flanagan was able to acknowledge that, but also make it work. Yeah. uh, While, while at the same time showing, and maybe this is one of my only criticisms of the movie, um, and funnily enough, I saw this at a test screening and I think I wrote this on the test screening form too, was, uh, is that Abra is so strong mm-hmm. in the movie that she is the only time she's caught unawares is when, uh, Crow Daddy, uh, you know, uh, drugs are up. Yeah. Right? And the, the, and the second she wakes up, she gets out of it. You know, it's like there, it isn't like a, a long, a long thing where my only criticism is, is just that you know, the, the true knot are just kind of when their bullshit starts dissolving, they just fall apart instantly. That house yeah. of cards just kind of falls apart, which I love, but you know, it, just in terms of uh, raising stakes, you show Abra mm-hmm. as being so powerful and Dan is being so powerful. And then you have them together. Um, uh, I'd say the one thing that I think the book does a little bit better than the movie um, and does it in a different way is, show the the need the necessity for 
going having to go to the overlook sure um, and, and and in the book you know the the book's it's, a sequel to, you know obviously the it doesn't Shining exist book. anymore in yeah the book. so it's yeah. just the husk of it but like the psychic energy is still there yeah um uh you know where in the book i felt it a little bit more that they had to do it that this that this is the only way that they would they they could um you know defeat the you know the pissed off rose well, the hat you and know. that's the also the interesting thing is that he sort of took the ending of the book of the shining yes and made it the ending of yep. the movie yes of dr sleep which is very yeah. and i guess i i what little bit i read that, that was kind of what made Stephen King kind of sign off on the whole thing. So, yeah, it's yeah. He did a he did a really magical thing there. Yeah, where, I think it's like, really it's legitimately you know going beyond just talking about it as like it's a good adaptation. It's well done. It's like it's a legitimately like it's a great movie just yes. like on its own as a movie, and you know the stuff the way that it references you know, Kubrick's film is almost just kind of a bonus, you know? And uh, yeah, I know. I really, I really thought it was, you know, a striking movie. And that's why when you asked me about doing this, that was like the first thing I thought of, you know, even though obviously like, you know, I mean, we could do that. We could talk, I could talk to you about Christine, all day long, you know, oh, Christ, I can't and, I do mean, another Christine. Episode. And well, and that's, I know we <laughs> talked about that. Like there's stuff that you guys have gone through many times, but, um, but doctors, doctor sleep is it's chewy, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah. Well, there's that, a lot, yeah. there's all you can, I think, uh, I think we've probably burned people out on the shining too, but the shining is like that as well, where it's like, it really depends on who you're talking to. Mm. You know, when, <clears throat> when we launched the show and decided like, yeah, we're going to repeat titles. We're going to have to repeat titles. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, by necessity, but you know, the, the, the beautiful idea of that was it will depend on who you're talking to. Um, what kind of conversation you have. Yeah. That yeah. has turned out to be true. 50% of the time. <laughs> there are like, th- there are some titles where, it's like there really are only a certain number of things to talk about conversationally mm-hmm. with them. Christine being one of them. Yeah. But there are there are other ones like like it or The Shining or Dr. Sleep where it's just this chasm. And fucking yeah. not only does does each person you talk to about it bring something new to the table, but like the conversations can go in any different kind of direction. And. Well, and I think it's just like, like also, I think when you start talking about Stephen King, you know, one of the things that you have to think about is like, you know, he's been, you know, he's been writing these incredible blockbuster bestseller books now for 40 years that have been part, you know, part of our sort of cult pop culture from pretty much from the beginning. I mean, like Mm -hmm. I said, I was reading all those books when I was way too young to be reading those books. I've, and I'm no, from listening to your show, I've heard other people say basically the same thing. And I mean, he's like the equivalent of like somebody like Charles Dickens was to, to the Victorian era of just being far beyond just an author but I mean, he's like a pop culture figure. And of course, yeah. you know, the same way that Dickens would do speaking tours and things like that, you know, Stephen King 
shows up in monster movies and and directs monster movies and you know and and he he really is at that same kind of level in terms of just being a huge part of people's lives for like you know several generations now yeah so yeah, I think and, we and I think we kind of t- take them for granted to a degree. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I think that's probably very true. You know, there's gonna there there will come a day where there are no there are no more Stephen King books, and that's gonna be a shattering fucking thing. yeah. Like because I mean, he was already up and running by the time I was old enough to become aware of what a Stephen King is. You yeah. know what I yeah. mean? And so it's been my entire fucking life. Well, I think you know also. And again, this goes back to that kind of generational thing. I think in the same way that, uh, you know, like the Rolling Stones say have been the Rolling Stones are still putting out records, you know, and they've been around for since, you know, 1960. And it's like it's kind of the same thing with Stephen King is that he's like. I mean, he's of the rock and roll generation and he's he's kind of the first rock star author yeah you know and and like those guys you know instead of that expectation that you know after the beatles stopped making music that nobody would give a shit about them i mean we're still inundated with the beatles you know years and years later and it's kind of you know kind of the same thing with him in in that you know Mm he still he remains sort of this cultural constant you know as other things come and go yeah. Well, I th- I think a part of that is because he's so varied in what he's put out. Because you, you know, for every Salem's Lot in The Shining, you know, he's got a Rita Hayworth in The Shawshank Redemption, mm-hmm. or um, you know, or an eleven twenty two sixty three, or you know, it's just he's able to wear multiple hats. Uh, you have that equation. You have the fact that he is constantly reintroduced into uh pop culture relevance by adaptations yeah. of his, his work or yeah. remakes of of his work you know with the you know it being the the big example recently mm-hmm. you know it and then you have you know so you have that corner of it and then you also have the fact that he's built himself up as a brand yeah where he's almost like hitchcockian you know the hitchcock of authors yeah. where everybody knows his face they know his name even if they've never read a stephen king book in their life they know who stephen king is uh, and then on the other side, you have this whole generation now of uh, people that are inspired by King just in the way, like, say, J.J. Abrams is inspired yeah. by Spielberg and is kind of uh, rolling that into, you know, his style of storytelling into their in, into their own original work, like the Duffer Brothers with Stranger Things or yeah. whatnot. Like, you have all these things, like, you know, on top of the fact that he's still putting out material and that he is writing some of the best stuff he's ever written. Well, it's now, it 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 is is, like, it's also, you know, goes back to what I said about like rock and roll. Cause it's that same thing that it's like, you know, he's got bands that want to sound like him. That's, you know what I mean? Like, he's, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's that same way that rock and roll kind of feeds on itself and reinvents itself. And it's, I, I mean, I think, I mean, and obviously, you know, he references, rock and roll music so often in his books, especially in the early books that it it is, you know, I think that's a super apt comparison. It's interesting. Um, One thing I want to ask you about is how do you feel about the, you know, they could have fucking done ghoulish 
CGI recreations of yeah. Of some oh of yeah, no, this is something I did did want to talk about because I really yeah. liked it. Yeah, like tell me what what were the first time you saw this? What were your reactions to the first time I saw it? I was at first, it was a little bit. I was I wasn't really sure where to go with it, but I really like I th- I think it's one of those things you just kind of you you have to decide. Like I'm cool with this or I'm not cool with this. And I think right. the the fact that I I think it's much better that he picked actors that resembled the original characters and could sort of portray a version of them rather than like right. do, you know, Grand Moff Tarkin as a computerized <laughs> thing. Like well, because like I want to say like Carl Lumley, he's so good in that. And I well, I so love him. Good. I always love him, but like he Great just fucking House of Usher too, by the way. Oh, I still need to watch that. He oh, you'll but, love that. Okay, but he nails that character. And and also I was fascinated by, you know, because of course there's the great scene with Danny talking to his father who's at the bar. And at first I was I didn't recognize the actor. Mm-hmm. And so when I looked, I was like, that's fucking Elliot for me, T. <laughs> you know, and that just kind of adds another point to what I was talking about about the whole generational thing, too, you know, because that was you know, obviously I saw E.T. when I was a kid and, you know, right. 1982 or 81, whenever it came out. But uh, and he did a great job and like oh, he yeah. did a great job of not not doing a Jack Nicholson impersonation. Right. It's not like a fucking SNL sketch. He's doing he's doing a Jack Torrance impersonation. You know yes. what I mean? Yes. And uh, so I really I, I thought I re- that was the thing was that would that would have been. With that movie, the the references back to Kubrick's movie, that definitely would have been the make or break thing for me. Like if right. that hadn't if he hadn't done that so well, I would have been like, This is bullshit. You know? <laughs> like, right. You know, you because it's like you 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 know, it's that whole thing about you come at the king, you better not miss. Like yeah. it's like if you're going to if you're going to very specifically call out like one of the best films made by one of the best directors that we've ever had, it's like, man, you've got some balls and it's like, not only do you have big balls, but like, if you actually pull it off, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. That's fucking crazy. I think the decision there is you have to be consistent and like as much as I would love to have, you know, seen, a like a very well done uh you know recreation of of, uh shining era nicholson Mm -hmm. and you know because there is a piece of me that like it does you you do have to get over that initial that isn't that isn't right because everything else around it looks right the the set's right but that this is off this is not right you have to kind of get over that and i've i've seen people watch this movie for the first time and get stuck on that but the thing is is you can't do nicholson like just cheat it where you're it's over the shoulder and then you get like a like a glimpse and a reflection or something Mm -hmm. that that they could maybe do and pull off and make it look photo real and and not ghoulish or whatever you know because it's he's not you know, giving a, a well, delivery. I, th- I think you it- could do that, but then you're the, the point is that you can't do that. And then, uh, also then do the, the Dick Halloran s- s- sections yeah. with a different actor. You can't have Alex Esso as, 
as um, Wendy, who, by the way, I think she's probably the one that's always overlooked here. Yeah, but I think she probably the is the Easy. best of, of, of all of them. It's like it is so ridiculous how she captures the Shelley Duvall in uh, performance. Yeah. In little things like just in how she runs or what where the how inflection she yells, is. But it's Danny. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. No, um, I th- but I think- you couldn't you couldn't do Nicholson uh, in that moment and then like recast everybody else. So your choice was either, you know, re- you know, do do a, a, a new cast doing these parts completely or doing the Tarkin weird Rogue One, you know, resurrecting well, Carrie Fisher that, bullshit through for everybody. Yeah. And that was was the wrong choice. I think so. that was totally, you know, the right choice, because I, I think yeah. you can get away with that stuff if it's. Well, like I, I actually thought that what they did in Rogue One with the actor playing Peter Cushing and with the digital, digital mm-hmm. makeup or however they did it, I, I that worked for me. I know a lot of people didn't like it. I thought mm. it worked, but I, I do. It th- worked for me in in sections. Like if they had played it, there's like a reflection when you, mm-hmm. he's first introduced, <clears throat> and you see him talking to Vader, but yeah. you see the talking's only in the reflection off of the yeah. the imperial window or whatever the star destroyer yeah. and that I'm like holy shit that's incredible and then they do all these close ups and you you can see the the layers of of digital yeah. work and, and well, it takes and, you out of but it but yeah. that's the thing is i don't think they're you know cuz i think like what was try what what they were trying to accomplish in doctor sleep i mean you got to have an actor i mean yeah, you got to have a sure. real human being you know, emoting in front of a camera. I mean, you can't like, you can get away with that shit for like a lot, but like, you can't just paint a bunch of dots on their face and, you know, do digital shit and have that same level of, of just emotive response, you know? And, you know, you gotta have, I mean, that's what they were fucking striking over. (laughs) You know, right. you gotta you gotta have a real actor do that stuff. Right. You know, and uh, no, I think it was which, which I will interject can work if you just look at say any random Andy Circus uh, oh, performance yeah. capture or like specifically all the the apes movies. Oh yeah, like everything that is done there, the humanity comes through, and you could absolutely achieve that in performance capture. But it's different when it's a human known face and it's a different yeah. person then then it just becomes there's a weird ethical and moral thing that comes in like you know i, I didn't want henry thomas's performance coming through jack nicholson's well face, yeah you and, know and like, i think there's also that you know just the nuts and bolts reality that it probably would have made the budget of the movie like twice as much to do cgi recreations of those characters rather than just cast an actor that that is can can pull it off you know right the other thing uh i wanted to ask you about and we kind of we glanced up against it a little while ago as a parent how do you feel about the baseball boy scene oh Mm. man well like i said that's that one that's tough to watch and i mean that's i'll tell you that's something that happens when you when you have a child you instantly realize how much dramatic stakes are in how how often in movies and television they use a child in danger to mm-hmm. up the stakes of the mm-hmm. drama uh, to an explo- exploitative point like and and I never even thought about it once until I became a 
father. And then it's mm-hmm. like you see something where a child is in danger and it just punches you in the guts. Like even something that seems like corny, you know, you just, it's hard. And yeah, that thing, I mean, that seemed very real. And I have to wonder as a director, how you direct a child actor (laughs) in that without feeling like a a fucking sadist, you know? And I, I, I think about that also in the context of there was an amazing documentary about the making of, um, uh, oh God damn it. Of course my, my brain is frying right now. Uh, uh, night of the hunter, the mm, Charles right, Lawton right. movie with Robert Mitchum, which is a great movie. One of my favorite movies. Yeah. But I watched this documentary and the documentary had a lot of the, like basically a b- behind the scenes, like there was another camera rolling as Charles Lawton is directing these kids and Charles Lawton is directing these kids. Like the way, like, He's like a little league coach, like screaming at them. And it's Mm. like, and now you know why the performances of in the movie of these little children are so powerful is because Lawton is like basically abusing them to get this performance, Mm. you know? And of course there's there's always those stories about Hitchcock being vicious to like little children that were like in his movies. But, uh, I, and yeah, and I, leading ladies for that matter. Yeah. yeah, well, yes, of course. But like, I just, I that was something that I wondered about at the time, is like when the director is directing that sequence, and you know, you want obviously you want the kid to give you a real reaction, but like, it probably, it, I don't know, man. It just <laughs> that would be a we have some behind the scenes stories on that one. That would be a um, tough dilemma for me as someone if I were the director of that situation. Well, you know what what Mike did for that was he actually had Rebecca Ferguson stab Jacob Tremblay while he was screaming on the yep. ground, and that's why. Like th- th- that's real. That's all real. Tremblay um, can Jesus. take a stab. Yeah, um, hopefully no. with just like a butter knife or something. Not like- no, no, there's the real knife because the butter knife just wasn't getting. The <laughs> well, they used they used a machete, so the yeah. actual was smaller. Yeah, that's how. They yeah, if that. you notice, like you haven't seen Jacob Tremblay for a while. Yeah, and that's right. When he shows His back one up, role. quote unquote, after puberty, like he looks like a completely different person. Yeah, like Toxic they, Avenger. They, they, when you see t- the new Toxic Avenger, it's fucking wild. Because he looks like a full-blown teenager in it, and he's doing some crazy shit in that movie. Like <laughs> people are going to be surprised when they see that. But this thing, this thing about children in peril, is you know, like you were saying, it, it wasn't something you thought about until you had kids. I don't have kids, but it's it, over the course of doing this show that it has occurred to me talking to other parents about. Uh, violence against kids in some of these these King stories. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've realized that's a thing, and I've kind of decided like I'm not, like I'm never going to have kids, but I've figured out that this is basically like the parent equivalent of me refusing to watch a movie if I hear like someone's shitty to a dog in it. Oh, dog totally, exactly. I can't watch movies where animals get hurt. Yeah. So yeah. it, it so it's similar, right? Like, yeah. am, am I on the right track there? Oh no, it's definitely the <clears> same <throat> vibe. I mean, and it's just, I, I. But I think it's different because you don't worry. I don't worry about my dog getting shot in a mass shooting 
but I sure. do worry about my <laughs> that happening to my son at school, yeah. you know, right, like right. It, it's, it's, and of course the, the, yeah, man, it's heavy. It's heavy. Having a kid is, it's a heavy fucking thing, you know? And I don't, yeah, that's why I'm not doing it. It's <laughs> a good choice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, it's King King. The way he writes children is so, spot on yeah and, well that's part yeah, of it too it, with him and is, well yeah but i mean the the deeper thing and you know i won't harp on it because i you know i bring it up i think every time we talk about the way uh king deals with kids and his his work uh but just to kind of throw it as a you know another uh log on the fire for this conversation is that you know this is the that's the thing that actually scares king and it, yeah. it, it was when he was one of his kids dying and so the uh, when you see him writing about the you know the uh, writing the losers club in it or mm-hmm. or you know uh, uh tad and cujo or, or yeah. you know mark petrie and salem's lot you know or the glick boys dying in salem's lot like all that stuff is it's it's all coming from this is the shit when king's like how what's scary to me that's yeah. what he goes to is is like well, his own course. children dying and and so you know i I think that a lot for a lot of people like this conversation just came up again. There was some ridiculous like social media post about how, you know, there's a trailer for the new terrifier movie or something and how it looked like a kid might be killed by the clown in it and, and how they're just, anybody watches it's despicable and, and all that. And everybody, and it's just like, it's a fictional character thing. I don't think terror the, the terrifier people are, are using whatever child in peril no. that, that they're teasing there in the same way that, that King would, no. you know, with as much thought uh, there, you know, he, he's always doing it for a reason. There's always some Those sort of subtext. suck ass. Uh, what he, you know, the, the killing animal stuff, he's a little bit more loosey goosey with as a, uh, just a way to raise stakes. But yeah. I think that uh, um, at least from, from a, a kind of looking at his entire career the the kids in jeopardy stuff is always going to be fascinating to me because one he writes the children so well and makes them real real people uh and he understands what it's like to be a kid and you get this weird nostalgia you know tickle in your brain center going like oh yeah that's that's how i was as a kid i remember that now like as a boring adult i maybe i forgot about that so you have that aspect but it's also because it works because that's what he, he the author is actually legitimately scared of and, yeah. and uh, wants to examine and work his way through. Yeah, no, that's that is a, a completely uh, correct assessment. I would say you're right. You're damn right. I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you for telling me. I appreciate it. <laughs> is there what else do we want to talk about in relation to Doctor Sleep that we haven't? Touched oh my on? goodness. Um, uh, we can talk a little bit uh, about one of the other completely random bizarre things that he did in the book that that mike very smartly uh ignored for the movie was was how you can essentially catch diseases through the steam yeah okay and that's so, i i read yeah. when i read the 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 sort of summary of the book yeah that was something that struck me and and i totally understand like all all that he was doing was like he was streamlining the story you know because right. there's a difference between a book that's 400 500 pages and a you know a movie screenplay obviously right. but uh yeah that that would have been a 
a weird tangent to go off it's kind on of a in step a too far yeah i mean i do like the the concept of of uh you know that these that the true not are ju- just keep fucking up and fucking up and doing things wrong yeah uh, and so when they kill the baseball boy he had the measles and they yes. fucking essentially infect themselves with the measles and that makes them even more desperate like i do kind of like that aspect of like everything that every time they're like oh they're these bad terrible ominous villains that are always doing the the wrong fucking thing and yeah. you know even when they win they lose like that 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 i think is kind of funny but um but i'm, I'm glad that he kind of streamlined it and just just made it I, I think that's just a step too far that's just one ask too many for for a movie yeah um uh and and uh but i also want to kind of touch on how one of the other big changes and this kind of ties into what you were talking about, how they had, how Mike decided to go with the ending of the shining yes, and, and burning down the hotel, because what, what King has always criticized the Kubrick movie as being as, um, is cold. It ends with ice. It, you know, it, uh, whereas yeah. his book ends with, with fire, it's warm. It's a warm book. So Mike deciding to honor the Kubrick movie, but also honoring the book gives the, shining legacy that warmth that king was missing and he does it in such a an interesting way because when you think about the ending of the book uh the ghost of jack torrance kind of steps up and and helps at the end and like pushes rose the hat off of a fucking cliff or something. Mm-hmm. uh it doesn't really work but like the emotion of it of of uh you know the the loving father you know making the move to save his yeah. son even in death uh, is transferred onto Danny where he's the loving father figure. He's the, yes. fa- you know, f- the father figure that's left for, for Abra, you know, um, having, giving him the Jack Torrance ending from the book, it all fits and works, even though it's not ad- adapting what King had actually written, which yeah. is why I think King is, is a particular fan of this adaptation, which is so much more wildly divergent than yes. anything Kubrick did. Yeah, by that's the way. it. I that, just wanna, exactly. But he gets the tone um, and the, 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 the feeling of warmth that I think King was missing from Kubrick. Um, uh, which, you know, it's fascinating. I mean, you, I, I would love to, if, if I could, I would love to sit down and just, you know, sit down with King while he's watching Dr. Sleep and have, and have him talk me through Like I want a commentary sure. of Stephen King watching Dr. Oh, Sleep and imagine? going through this. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I, I, you know, that's something I think about uh, when I think about this movie is just how it is so wildly divergent from the source material, but gets, at the heart of what both the shining and Dr. Sleep are ultimately trying to do, yeah. which, you know, makes it a great adaptation, even though tech, like I said, technically Kubrick's adaptation of the shining is way closer to the book and it's wild. And it's yes. uh, widely viewed as a, as a, a, a bad adaptation of that, that story, which is that's, I mean, yeah, that still blows my mind, but yeah, but you know, I think part of that is just that, that it's not even so much people reacting to the actual, movie or the book as it is that kind of American mentality of like everybody has a favorite sports team and they cheer for their favorite sports team and they hate the, the, the team that beats them, the rival, you know? And I think it's just like people have that weird either or mentality here instead of just being able to say, Oh yeah, this is a thing I like. And I also like this thing, but they're completely different, you know? So 
Mm. Well, does that even make wrong. any sense? I don't know. Yeah. It does. It does. Yeah. <laughs> and if you and if you watch any Q and A's with King from around this the period that The Shining came out, yeah, you see that because it's all you know. It's, obviously, it's all his readers yeah. that are in these you know university Q and A's and shit that he's well, doing or these book tours. And and every time The Shining movie comes up, like the audience is like boo boo. And yeah. He's like, yeah, I know, I know. Well, you know, what are you gonna do? You know that yeah, uh, that the, kind of thing. Greatest- and, and it's the greatest yeah. filmmaker of the 20th century wanted to make an adaptation of one of my books. What an asshole. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah but, no, I mean, I've seen the, the like, I've seen the TV movie version that yeah. he was, you know, that he was like, I guess a lot right. more involved in and is more, yes. more faithful to the book. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's nice. It's not, but it's not, it's not Kubrick. It, I it's mean, interesting. It's interesting as, as a, counterpoint to right. to the Kubrick thing in the adaptation conversation, but like you just can't really yeah, yeah, you, you pull those two movies up next to each let's other. Let's replace and, and Jack Nicholson with the guy from Wings. <laughs> hey, we, we love our Steven Weber around these parts, so we will not tolerate oh, no, any Steven I, Weber. I like him too. I, I, you know, I love him in the, the Larry David movie where he and his cousin <laughs> they they Oh they sour grapes. The, that's it, sour grapes. He's hysterical in that movie. Mm-hmm. So he's a funny yeah. motherfucker, man. Yeah. That oh, guy. Yeah. We I'm did sure, a I'm sure he's lovely. We went out to LA last December and did a big history of the shining panel. And it was like us plus Weber, Mick Garris, Mike Flanagan, and Henry Thomas. Oh wow. And that, it was oh, man. Uh my only my only note on that is we only had an hour and there were six of us on stage, so it was mm-hmm. like it felt like a rush right through. Sure, yeah, yeah. We, it felt like it was over before it even started. Like we needed like three hours to really fucking <laughs> dig into that thing. But man, yeah. what a fucking. I think that's like. I mean, I, I really enjoyed that trip we did up to to Maine, but uh, mm. being able to talk to all those guys at once about the shine right. was like sure. fucking surreal. That was a fun sure. one. Yeah, that was great. But well, um. We are about out of time. This sounds <clears throat> like the wrap up. Yes. It is. <laughs> uh, but it, you, this was fantastic. Um, I I love talking about this movie. Uh, I love the conversations that it inspires and, and you, you killed it. So, so thank you for Why, being thank here you. again. Um, tell, tell the people where they, they, uh, they can find you, uh, your website, all Let's that. Let's all that 15 social media accounts. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm art of coop, A R T O F C O O P on pretty much all social media formats. So whatever mm-hmm. flavor you prefer, I'm probably there. Uh, I oh god do I have to do like do I have to remember URLs and shit I have a big oh card- yeah 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 and accurate too or yeah to deduct points I mean, at the if end you of go this, to any yeah. of my social media you'll see the link to my link tree with my big cartel store and my threadless store and all that good stuff I mean go go check out Coop's stuff people if you're a, but, if you're a fan not, of this podcast yes thank you you'll be a, you'll be a fan of his stuff please it's, buy it's really good shit yeah buy <laughs> Buy a few things while you're there. Yes, absolutely. We'll have a big Black Friday sale coming up. So, although this mm. probably won't appear until after that. So, no, yeah, I think if, this is you going know, up. Christmas is coming up. Yeah, you buy your wife a, a, a nice portrait of a big tittied Satan girl. Yeah, there um, you go. That you sounds know. good. <laughs> She'll love it. Well, thank you for being here, sir. This of was course. fantastic. And you and I need to go get burgers again. Yes. Very soon. 
Yes. Yeah, yes. you should have called me when you went to Lala's the other night. I love that place. Oh man, that was that was a wild time. But <laughs> <laughs> thanks again for being here, man. This was great. Yeah, of course. Many thanks to Chris Cooper. Uh, Scott, we missed a uh, a pretty big date here. Did you realize uh, what date that this episode is falling on? I did not. It is 11-22-23. We fucked no up. This shit. should have been an 11-22-63 episode. Why didn't we Fuck. look at the calendar before doing this? Let's get Coop back on the phone. We got to record this fucking thing, <laughs> yeah. man. Yeah, well, or re-record it. About, yeah, he talks about it, like that being a title he's been... Um, uh, I don't know, like drawn to that. He hasn't read a lot of like newer King and he's been drawn to that one. So I'll, I'll take that as our win there that we're, we're on yes. theme for at least a little bit of the conversation here, but it's struck me while I was editing and I'm like, Oh, we done fucked up. Why didn't we like look ahead? Koopa was an excellent guest. Very honored to know, uh, uh, Koopa in real life and to have finally, like, I, I, I don't know why I didn't ask him sooner. Like fucking, I, I talked to him somewhat frequently, you know? Um, but uh, that's that's one of my we've done a bunch of Dr. Sleep episodes, but that, that one's one of my favorites. It's, yeah, it gets into some nitty gritty shit that I don't think we got into on on previous occasions. And, and Coop clearly uh, came to play. Uh, he took the assignment seriously. He had um, he had things to say, and we appreciate that in our. Yes. Yeah. Also, he's an yeah. unrepentant pervert, and I love that about him. <laughs> uh, yeah, I really cannot uh, recommend enough that our listeners go out. Look into look into Coop's art. Check out his website. Um, buy something from him, especially if you're a monster person. He he loves monsters too. Uh, really, really great guy. Love that guy to death. You should come out sometime. Like I meet him for burgers for lunch occasionally, Ooh. and he he I I think on both like every occasion that I've ever run into him, he's he's driving one of his fucking hot rods and shit. Like he he's that that, that stretch in there where we're talking about his cars. He's not fucking around. Like. He's got some really cool shit that you would not normally see on the road. So All right. you should you come with Coop next and, time we and get him. Top notch. Let's do it. So we go to Jew boys. Oh, I love Jew boys burgers, which this is should... a burger place, by the way. Yeah. If, if anybody's uh, yeah. curious. Yeah, I was going to say, I should mention <laughs> it's owned by two Jewish brothers. That's what they yeah. called the place. I'm not, yep. you know, <laughs> disparaging anyone. Uh, but legitimately some of, some of the best burgers in, in, in Austin. And that's saying something. So yeah, we, we do real. burgers pretty well here. So yeah. Uh, all right. In told and totally sold. Um, all right. So let's, let's talk, talk about, about what we got. Yeah. Yes. No, no, you say it. Oh, I'll say it. Let's talk say about it, what baby. we got. What we got on deck. You, you mentioned that, uh, this Dr. Sleep episode that everybody just listened to, we got to uncover some new angles on something. And, uh, you know, we have a title next week that we've never done on the show. That's a we high did. in demand title. Don't do we, we not. do. We are, we are finally tackling Rose red yeah. for everyone who has been, and we talk about this on the episode for everyone who has been asking us, begging us, demanding, uh, straight up bullying us in some in some fashion mm-hmm. to cover Rose Red. Uh, Vespi and I finally sat down. We uh, Vespi rewatched Rose Red. I watched it for the first time. And uh, our guest is Ms. Mallory O'Mara, mm-hmm. who frequent uh, listeners of the show are, are well familiar with. She's. She's been here since the very beginning. She's on the Mount Rushmore of guests for the show and um, is also one of our uh, our uh, Shelbyville compatriots. Indeed. Uh, she 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 returned and brought in Rose Red as her title. And so everyone can finally stop asking us about this. We just recorded over two hours on yep. Rose Red. 
yeah, you this were is getting not an instant, uh, not a, a tiny episode. We're not just glancing at it. There, there comes a point about an hour and a half into the chat where we're like, like, oh man, we're kind of we kind of went off on a tangent, and then we come back for another full thirty minutes worth of deep dive right. rose red talk. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's it's substantial. I I don't know. It's it's one of those episodes we've recorded a few of these where. Uh, it, it only happens very rarely, but we get a title for the first time and we cover it so thoroughly where I'm like, well, we don't need to do that again. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what stone we might have left unturned <laughs> on on Rose Red, but we go through it from top to bottom, from the cast to the to the filmmakers, to the the origins of it, to Shirley mm-hmm. Jackson, to to everything. It, it, this is a a substantial episode that we are are sending you into december with and uh we think you're gonna love it hell yeah and then for our patreon subscribers this friday we have as usual a a bonus episode for your listening pleasure and this one uh we are bringing in our friends uh miss uh, joanna robinson and mr dave gonzalez they wrote the wonderful new book mcu the reign of marvel studios which is the uh, real look behind the curtain at the rise and in a lot of people's eyes, maybe now the current fall of um, Marvel Studios and very smart, very fun people to have on the show. And we decided we wanted to kind of jump off of their book and use that as an excuse to talk about uh, superheroes and Stephen King. So this this is. Uh, maybe not as much of as a focused conversation as I initially intended it to be, uh, but it's this wide ranging chat about you know Stephen King's history with superheroes. There's some Doctor Doom stuff in Dark Tower, for instance. There's the infamous Green Goblin face in uh, Maximum Overdrive. Uh, Stephen King and Marvel uh, go back a long ways, um, but yeah, we talk about that. We talk about you know, kind of his, you know, a lot of his characters who would like be good fits for a superhero, have their own comic book sure. that kind of thing. So it's a wide ranging superhero conversation with uh, two very smart people who know comic books and comic book movies uh, backwards and forwards. Yes. And I, I would like to add to anyone that just listened to that, that spiel, I, I don't give a fuck about superhero <laughs> movies and i had a blast during this conversation it's it's a lot of fun so if you heard that and you're like i don't give a shit tune in anyway yeah it's the good shit is it's a really good episode i concur i i do give a shit about superhero movies and i and i was very entertained so sure. we run the spectrum we've got everybody covered on this one something for uh, everyone king cast on the spectrum that's the message <laughs> wait a minute wait wait yeah we're not making shirts out of that yes. um yeah if you want to listen to that make sure to head on over to our uh, patreon which is patreon.com slash the king cast and sign up we got that we got uh Geez, I think we're only a week away from uh, from a new episode of Shelbyville dropping. So uh, if you're you're into our our run on Shelbyville, then uh, well, you need to fucking sign Strap up. Strap in, motherfucker. Send us some it money. It gets weirder. Yeah, it's gonna be good stuff. All right. Well, let's get out of here. Yeah, yeah. H- happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy to all of our American American compatriots and uh, and uh, and our other compatriots. There's people. Yeah. In- you don't give a shit about we don't really honestly give a shit about Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's just a thing where we eat a bunch, you know, like I don't unlike our typical American schedules, <laughs> right? <laughs> where we gather with our friends and eat uh, a gross amount of food. Yes. Yes. Not it's a, like it's a, that. It's a strange week for us. <laughs> yes. All right. Adios, everyone. And bye. 
The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. 